Welcome to Corwin's Leaders Coaching Leaders Podcast with host Peter DeWitt. This podcast is from education leaders for education leaders. Every week, Peter and our guests get together to share ideas, put research into practice, and ensure every student is learning, not by chance, but by design. Hi, Peter. This is a special session, but welcome. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. I know it seems a little strange, right? It's going to be weird to be on the on our podcast together, but now I'm on the receiving end. So yeah. don't ask me difficult questions. That's all I'm doing. Uh, I, will, I will do my best, but I won't um, hold any punches. Not that this is a punches podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're doing a little role reversal today, guests and listeners. And I'm really excited because I think, um, or I, I deeply feel in my bones as, a, as an educator that the topic we're going to discuss on de-implementation is a critically important one for us to, to not just discuss for these times, but in general, um, that it, it really should be vocabulary that is part of everybody, especially every leader's um, discourse and as they think about whatever next steps they're looking to do, the implementation is a part of it. So before I say any more, because obviously I want the floor for you, you to be the one to, to share and tell us all about this. Uh, de-implementation is, is kind of ironically a six syllable word, but it's about simplifying. <laughs> I never thought, wow, that's really good. I never even thought about it. Yeah, yeah, but it's about simplifying. So um, we always begin our podcast with really trying to define the terms. And so I want to keep with that tradition. And so Peter, one, what is de-implementation and why does it matter? And particularly, why does it matter now? Good question. So I never thought about the syllable piece. That was, that was good. <laughs> uh, so de-implementation is the abandonment of low value practices. That's exactly what the medical research says. Uh, I was introduced to the topic from um, Aaron Hamilton, who's who's out of uh, Cognition Education New Zealand, he and I were talking about it a long time ago, and I just couldn't get it out of my head. Um, it's important because as I was writing a book on collective leader efficacy and the eight drivers necessary for a school team to come together, I was reading research from NASSP and LPI that talked about 42% of principals wanting to leave their profession. I started looking in the UK and there was a great deal of research about teachers and leaders being burned out. Australia, same thing. It's a worldwide issue. And even when I wrote instructional leadership a few years ago, it was about why is instructional leadership so difficult to practice? It's because our workloads have increased over the past 20 so years since things like NCLB and increased accountability. There's no better time, especially after COVID and the mental health and social emotional issues that we've seen to be able to at least engage in a conversation about what really matters for us, what really has an impact and what is just stuff that we're doing because we've always done it before. And as you know, um, because this is the first book in your editing uh, cycle for, for Corwin. Uh, you know, I wrote, wrote a blog about it and you contacted me and said, yeah, that, that's what we do. <laughs> so it's your fault that I'm writing about this because you're like that, that's what I want you to, that's what I want you to write about. And I was kind of amazed at how quickly I could. So. Yeah. Uh, I think um, if I may say, maybe part of your quickness is your just to, 
piggyback on what you were saying before about how urgent this is, is that innovation needs a place to thrive and it needs a place to come in. You, I don't think this is about stopping that. And I, you know, I, I feel you would agree, but it needs to have the room to be able to do that. And it can't, frankly, if the space is just, it's too cluttered. Yeah, yes. that's why you and I, that's why you and I chose the subtitle, right? Yeah. The, the space because yeah. of the fact that we do need that space to be innovative. If we're just doing things all the time, then we don't get the opportunity to really step back and conceptually think about what is it that what is it we should be focusing on? Where should we be spending our time? What's going to give us the most impact? And yeah, I would think that one of the sort of mis perceptions of de-implementations, it's about just getting rid of stuff when you yeah. and I both know that it's not. De-implementation in, in what, what I put together was a partial reduction or a replacement action. And you can have an informal de-implementation or a formal de-implementation. The informal de-implementation doesn't need a team. It's something you can do on your own. Formal de-implementation is something where you need a team. And we, you know, I, we explored, um, you as the editor, me as the writer, we explored the idea of things like zero tolerance policies and how discriminatory they can be. Um, and in some cases, how racist they can be. And we looked at exploring the idea of getting rid of zero tolerance policies, but replacing them with more culturally responsive, um, you know, sort of, sort of discipline issues like restorative justice or something like that. But it was also, you know, the idea of replacing uh, traditional grading with standards-based grading. So de-implementation is in some cases about a partial reduction, but in other cases, it's about replacing what we're doing with something that's going to be much more impactful. Yeah, and so to continue that just a little bit, because I do think people might hear de-implementation and it's about reducing, and that while sometimes it's, it is about just stopping something, it is, it is more nuanced than that. So can you really bring forth especially to leaders and even superintendents who are thinking about this, there is a plan that is needed behind it at times. Like it has to be a very thoughtful process. It's not just, you know, pulling a switch and saying we're done with that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, because when I was doing the research and I've done the research for the past year, just because I was, I was planning on adding it to the book on collective leader efficacy, which I did. So I started really researching it over a year ago. And when I started using Mentimeter and um, which is an online engagement tool in my in-person or remote workshops, I was doing research to that and surveys and everything else. And so when you're looking at formal de-implementation, it's really about the idea of that partial reduction of the replacement action. Replacement action in general is about getting together and starting to look at this cycle of de-implementation, which is going to be you know, what are we inquiring here as far as where we want to spend our time, what's giving us the most impact? And the cool thing now is that districts are starting to engage this work. So I'm starting to get informed by what they're, what they're doing, but it's the idea of let's look at all of our initiatives and get an understanding of which ones are actually impactful and why they might not be. And then inquire, that's the inquiry part where we don't develop a theory of action. If we do this, then this is what's going to happen. And then you, you, you jump into the planning aspect. And in the book, I have the program logic model. I have a pacing chart, which is something I've never done before. Um, and you were really great with, with going through that process with me. But it was also about, I created a de-implementation checklist um, that is for district and building leaders, as well as teachers to be able to go through. And I know that sounds daunting, but it's not. 
um, the, the implementation checklist much is just like most of my work, it's very practical and something to go through, but it engages us in a conversation we need to have about, is this impactful? Why hasn't it been? What do we need to do? And then you go into that de-implementation process, right? And that's where the pacing chart really comes in to start thinking. So if we're going from traditional grading to standard-based grading, here are the things we have to be able to think about, right? Here's the pilot group that's going to be starting this. Um, and then you go into that whole, you know, evaluating the impact of the actions that you're taking. So there is definitely a, uh, a process, probably the most comprehensive process than any other book that I've ever written because I wanted to be thoughtful because I heard people say things like, you know, what if teachers just go in tomorrow morning and start getting rid of stuff? And I also, when I was doing the research behind it, I would do these Mentimeters where I would go through all the research and talk about partial reduction and replacement action, informal de-implementation, formal de-implementation. Here's the cri criteria for de-implementation because that's even a part of it, right? Which is, you know, it's not as impactful as it could be. We found something that's more impactful. In some cases, it causes harm. So we need to do something different or it's just not necessary anymore. And, you know, there, there's that criteria from farmer um, which comes from the field of school psychology. And what I found is even after going through all that, the very first question I would ask in the Mentimeter is, so what would you de-implement first? And every time I did this, and I've done this with hundreds and hundreds of people by now, every time it was always something that people felt was coming down to them, that was being forced upon them. Mm -hmm. That really caused me, because I always look for common themes, that gave me the understanding that I needed to be much more intentional. Right? Yeah. That's why yeah. I went through and created that process and all that stuff. Because what we wanted to, what I wanted people to get to understand is, yes, we do need to do something about that stuff that might be forced upon us. Absolutely. And that's going to take us all to be a part of it. But what about the things you're doing that might not be impactful that you really do have control over? And that's a part of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the intentionality of this is such a is a big part. So if and I and I want to talk about this two sides of the same coin with implementation and de-implementation, which really comes up in, in your book as well. But as you were speaking, I thought about where this research came from from the medical field and why they understand it's so important is because, you know, what's there's a lot riding on the medical field not being very clear about what's working and not working. And I think in the medical field, it shows up in your face very quickly or it can. Yeah. And so there is a very strong need to make sure you're not doing harm or even wasting because there's only the same 24 hours is what everybody's competing with or the eight hours that you have while you're at school. Yeah, It's just as urgent in schools. It may not show up in your face as quickly. I, I, that's understandable. I think maybe that's one of the reasons it can, it, you, it's so easy to add on. But the impact can be just as devastating for children and students and families if we're not sure that we're focusing on the stuff that really, really works and giving it time to, to thrive. So, so going back to this de-implementation and implementation, in the book, you really talk about both of these. Can you, can you talk about why that implementation part is, is such a big part of de-implementation? Yeah. And it's because, you know, when I was looking at the medical research, I found um, an, an implementation model called PRISM. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was really interesting about it is that, you know, on one side, they talked about 
the characteristics or the perspective of the perspective of the doctor, the nurse, um, the medical professional, right? And on the other side was the patients, the the perspective of the patients. And then you had the characteristics of the doctors, the nurses, and the you know other medical professionals, and then the patients' um, characteristics. So what I did was I I adapted that to schools and put in you know a school leader and teacher. And then obviously instead of patients, it's the students. But going through, when you look at the perspectives and characteristics of, of all of those, let's call them stakeholders in a school, then you go into the whole idea of like the implementation part. But one of the words that came out in that prism was maintenance. Mm-hmm. And they even had like on each side, there was outside influences, right? So people could look at that as their school board or their school community. Um, or situations that happened, but that maintenance piece came up. And I remember the first time I talked about it, it was with a large group of directors of teaching and learning from across the state of Washington, where I'm a lead advisor. And they overwhelmingly said, yeah, the hard part of implementation is the maintenance part. And I remember just doing a lot of thinking about that because when we implement it's, it's interesting as a writer and maybe as the researcher side and just somebody who reflects way too much is that when you start to think about the maintenance and the implementation, it makes me start thinking about, so where does this come from? And asking questions about, so when you, you know, I run workshops mm-hmm. uh, and I give keynotes and people have really, I had, an, I had a conversation with the superintendent a few weeks ago because I had said, we have to be careful when we go to conferences and workshops that we're not going to get the new shiny toy because we know there isn't one. And we've been saying that for years. And a person came up to me after the conference and he said, I just want to tell you though, I feel a lot of pressure to bring back something new because my school board paid for me to be here for three days. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, mm-hmm. I work with a lot of directors in across the country and around the world who have talked about the idea that, you know, they go to conferences and workshops to find something new. And it's caused me to really think about, do you go to a conference and workshop to get a new strategy? Or do you go to a conference and a workshop to inform the practice of what you're doing already? Those are the conversations that we need to be able to have. So this yeah. is a, this yeah. holistic issue that we have to confront. And it means that when we're thinking about implementation, how are we asking those questions already about how does this look in our school district or our school already? Because I can guarantee you that there are teachers within the school or school district that are doing the work already. They just don't call it the researchy term that mm-hmm. we're referring it to. You should talk to them mm-hmm. if you ever go and make it seem like you're bringing back a mm-hmm. brand new idea. So there's even that kind of part of it that I think we have to be able to address and understand. Do we really need to do all the things that we're doing? Such important, honest conversations that you need to have in your building. You made me think about incentives, you know, and how you have to think about how you're incentivizing things. Because you may think it's, again, maybe it's for innovation and to improve, but if what it actually feels like is I must do something rather than the goal is making sure we're every day giving the best we can to our students and families, those are those are two different things. Um, and I just want to say what's also true about the maintenance piece that you brought up in, in, in my research on schools, especially high performing schools, high achievement, high well-being, schools that are doing really well, there isn't a lot of change, right? They figure out what works, however their methods are, they get that clear, 
and then they keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, and they really refine it. And only until that stuff is really at mastery for many people in the building, do they start to bring on new things. Like they really do treat their front doors as like, they're the gatekeepers, like only the best yeah. can come in. Um, so I, I just I just wanted to say that about the maintenance piece. It's really true. So yeah, I remember, you know, yeah. John Hattie um, and Aaron Hamilton have a you know a book that just came out, and with Doug Reeves, with yeah, Impact with Doug Reeves and Janet Clinton. And when I was reading the review copy before it was published, you know, they talked about in there the fact that there's a discrepancy between what the research says about a strategy and how it's practiced in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And you know, some of that is because. If I'm a teacher and I've been doing JSAL method or reciprocal teaching for a really long time, I can convince myself that I'm doing it the exact way it's supposed to, but that's not always what the research says. And also sometimes what's hard about the research is that the researcher might not have a lot of experience within a classroom. You know, I was a first grade teacher for seven out of 11 years and you have 30 first graders in a high poverty city school like your day-to-day -day operations can be just very, very different. So it's even understanding those kind of nuances yeah. are, are really important. And that's what I try to explore within the book. It's not just about what the research says and, the, and how we as teachers and leaders implement. It's about that space in between where we mm -hmm. have to be really clear and there needs to be a, a great deal of clarity where that's concerned too. Yeah, and, and having a conversation like this is a, the important first step. <laughs> um, okay, so school leaders in particular, I'm thinking about you know superintendents or just district leaders or central office leaders or even principals. I think you alluded to earlier that they can be a little fearful of this term and what it could mean <laughs> let loose in their buildings or in their districts. Mass dumping out <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> How do you begin to assuage their fears? How can you help them understand it's all of what you've shared already to some degree but yeah. for that no we we don't have time to have more teachers and 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 schools saying no we don't want to do something we feel like we're already pushing back against you know we don't want to do this yeah. why do they have to pay attention to this so i think there are a few reasons why number one the research around mental health and social emotional learning is telling us we have to pay attention to this because people are burned out People are leaving the profession. Um, there is, there's just a high level of burnout because people are doing so much. And I can't imagine that all of it is worth doing. Part of what we have to be able to do is create a climate and a culture within our school where there's a safe space that we can, you know, we always talk in group work about psychological safety. This is why, you know, I started to talk about the implementation, the collective leader efficacy book, because it's how a team comes together to engage in this kind of conversation is really important. We have to do that prep work and then we can, we can create that safe space where we can be open and honest. Um, I know of a district that I'm working with that is actually looking at, you know, they put all their initiatives up on the, up on the wall and they're starting to go through and process which ones are going to be the most impactful or why haven't some of them been, been impactful and having that kind of conversation. And it, it does take time. This is not a, this is not a one, one conversation. For me, I'm a big fan of reflecting, which means that, um, you know, if I'm going to be at a meeting where this conversation is going to come up, I need to know the basics about it, right? I need to know the formal versus informal, the partial reduction, the replacement action, the, you know, all of that kind of stuff. 
And then I need to be able to walk away and think seriously about where would I start when it comes mm -hmm. to the implementation. Engaging in those conversations is, is really important. I think that if I was a school leader during this time, yeah. I would probably be one of the first school leaders ever to walk into a school and look at teachers and say, I really wanna have our committee, our instructional leadership team, look at taking stuff off of our plate. I really would love to be that person having that conversation because I can guarantee you that doesn't happen very often. No, it doesn't. And I'm, I, can, I can hear the exhale in the room, Yeah. right? And so what your book does though is give people a frame and a shape and a process so that it, again, the free for all, yeah. I don't like that. Maybe you start there, you get it all out, but there has to be an intentional process for really thinking about this particularly if it's up at the school level. All right, so we're coming to our, our closing and there's been so much good information here, but I guess I wanna end with, um, there's a spectrum of de-implementation that you've mentioned, partial replacement, maybe you are just taking some things away. There's, there's, there's a variety of ways to go about it. This is important at, at the classroom level all the way up to the district level. So maybe even thinking about any teachers or again, principals who are listening, what are some things that they could start to de-implement on their own or really think about or, or get started with, you know, next week in their schools or maybe this summer as they're thinking about the following year? Um, and I think we mentioned some of the larger ones uh, that they could, but maybe a quick um, reiterating that a bit again about like what are the big things you can think about, but there are some things that you could get started doing that's happening in your school right now that could begin to turn down the, just the level of pressure that that educators feel yeah the you know I, one of the places that i would start is informal de-implementation where we don't need a team because that's probably going to be the grassroots effort the ground up kind of thing if you go in and say to people this is what informal is right you don't need a team and you can either you can do a partial reduction of how often you check email and i'm a little shocked at how much email has actually come up over and over and over again over the past more than a year now. Um, we are so tied to email. We are so afraid to not be instantaneous in our and you know how we answer email. And so a partial reduction would be, you know what, I'm going to set boundaries around email. I'm going to have an automated response uh, for my email that says I check email at 7:30 noon and five o'clock in the afternoon. After that, I go home to be with my family. Um, and set a boundary like that. If those times don't work for you, figure out some times that do. Um, but I'll answer you in the, you know, the next 24 hours or so, sending something like that. So you have the ability to breathe. And as a leader, if you do that, you can get up and get into more classrooms and that, and that kind of stuff, I think is really important. Meetings. Do you really need to have the number of meetings yeah. that you have? That's, that's a, that's not a, that's not something that's a formal de-implementation. That's, that's an informal de-implementation. Do we really have to meet as much as, as we do? Or if we are going to meet, let's make it worthwhile where we have a focus on learning. You know, one of the replacement actions that I offer is the fact that I put in success criteria. Every time I'm gonna run a workshop, give a keynote, have a coaching session, I start off with success criteria to say, how are we gonna know at the end of this meeting we're successful? And I, I actually asked the audience, even in keynotes, I've asked the audience, give me your success criteria so I can tie it into making sure that everybody finds this time to be very, very valuable. 
those are really easy things that they can do right away. Um, teachers can actually look at the number of assessments. And this did not come from me, even though I wrote it in the book. Um, I had teachers who actually said, I don't have to give the number of assessments that I'm giving uh, because I don't check them. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Why would you do it, right? So even looking and saying, I can reduce the number of assessments that I'm getting, giving to my students because I'm not keeping up with them anyway. If I give fewer, I'm actually going to be able to do something productive with them. So those are some really great places that people can start. And yeah, I, I would absolutely agree that everyone can likely find one meeting that they can get rid of. Do a survey, get some sense of where your people stand, but something will show up on that survey about <laughs> a meeting that people don't need. Exactly. I, I put my money on it. Peter, talking to you about this again reminds me of how excited I got about it when I first saw you write about this in Ed Week. It's the same feeling months later about this on some level seems so obvious, it, but yet not. It is so needed, yet no one talks about it. There is no formal language to speak about it, to give it the earnest seriousness it deserves. It's not a flippant thing. But if we don't inject this kind of thinking into the conversation, I'm always thinking about the children on the ground, right? Who that third grader only gets that year to get what he or she needs. And so we have got to be doing everything we can to make sure that every all of that time is used as efficiently and as effectively as possible. So, so all I take all the, the credit or the all the <laughs> whatever you want to give. <laughs> For putting this book out into the world. Um, well, thank you, because I do. I remember that email uh, with a link to the blog, and you said, This, yeah, this should be your next book. And I'm thinking, yeah. Oh, I just finished Collectively. <laughs> it came out a month ago. There's yeah. no way I can write a book. And then I think it was like three days later, I contacted you and said, Okay, here it is. Um, and the world needs it. So, um, in all kinds of spaces, but we're talking about education. So, Peter, what um, a joy pleasure thinking about this with you again today and, and just learning about it again. And I really hope our, our listeners get a lot out of this and feel empowered to go back to their spaces and say, okay, let's just wait a moment <laughs> and, and see. And that that's okay to say too. Well, Tanya, thank you. Thank you for, you know, your partnership on it because it was the first time we got to work together. Yeah. And that, that to me was just an amazing experience. And people will know when they open up the cover that it was during a very difficult time in my life. So mm -hmm. You were just amazing during the whole entire during the whole entire piece. But I will now love to turn the hot seat over to another guest, so I don't have to sit in it. But thank you. All right, uh, you can get out of the light now. <laughs> Go cool off, um, uh, Peter. Enjoy the rest of your day until we learn again together soon. Bye.